going to take a reading tonight from John chapter 12. I've been drawn back to John chapter 12. As you know, this uh, week in a traditional Christian calendar is, is known as Holy Week, uh, the week in the run-up to uh, Easter and next Lord's Day. In that traditional Christian calendar is, uh, is the, the day that's marked for uh, special remembering of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, we have a privilege in Churches of God to remember that every week, and we're thankful uh, for that. We'll take our reading from John 12 in a moment, and you'll see the reason why I've selected it, because it's really the beginning of that final week in the run-up to the Lord's crucifixion, uh, to his death, and then his resurrection. It was around about this time in the year, Back in AD 33, then, that Jesus, um, he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he was welcomed by the gathered crowds who saw him as God's promised uh, King Messiah. And they had expectations that he was going to bring about the overthrow of the Roman occupiers and that he was going to establish God's kingdom as they understood it uh, from the Old Testament. But within six days of the Lord coming in on that donkey, um, his followers' hopes, their hopes would be dashed. Um, Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest followers and handed over to the Jewish religious authorities who accused him of blasphemy that was um, to be dealt with by death. And they hauled him before the Roman authorities and they got that death sentence that they were looking for. And Jesus was crucified and killed. And his body was laid in that tomb. And his followers' hopes were dashed. But the joy of the story and the reality of it is that after three days, after that burial, Jesus rose from the dead. And that changes everything. It's what he'd repeatedly told his followers, his disciples, that it was going to happen that way, that he would be not only the king messiah but he would be the suffering messiah and through his sufferings would reveal his power and authority over a greater enemy than the might of the romans and established a greater eternal kingdom than any kingdom they had imagined and that would come about through his death and his resurrection they hadn't yet understood it but those followers were going to come to understand as they interacted with the risen Lord Jesus, that he was truly the son of God who had become a human being. So that God's eternal plan uh, to redeem his people would be achieved. And by living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, and being gloriously raised from the dead, Jesus, he died in the place of guilty sinners like us. And by resurrection, uh, defeated sin and death and the power of sin and death and he established God's eternal kingdom and for the repentant and forgiven sinner there is the invitation to share in that with him for eternity. Now, God's kingdom is enjoyed by all who acknowledge Jesus's deity that he is God that see his power and his glory and his right to be king and Lord. It's those people who trust Jesus to be that, um, who are brought into God's kingdom. 
that's the joy of something that we know. And maybe others who might listen to this or watch this another time, they're not sure of that. So we go over these things because this is a matter of life and death. Really, we see that trusting Jesus, who he is and what he has done and what he continues to do and trusting him above everything else is what secures for us a place in God's kingdom now and forever. What a glorious God. I'd like us then coming back to John 12 now to look at an event that happened the day before Jesus came into Jerusalem on that donkey. And that, in a sense, seemed to kickstart those final few days of um, struggle with the religious leaders that would result in his crucifixion. I want us to see what happened the day before that. And we read about it here in John chapter 12 and starting at verse 1. I want us to notice this is one of John's great contrasts. John, in his gospel, is full of contrasts, light and darkness, life and death blind and seeing and so on. Here's a contrast between somebody who is trusting in Jesus for now and for eternity and somebody who is trusting in something other than Jesus with serious consequences. Let's read John chapter 12, starting from verse one. It says there, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What a wonderful uh, narrative of what happened in Bethany. He's come to this place where he has close friends. The Lord Jesus has come there knowing he'll be welcomed. And it's a place where he is received and he is honored. Oh, we see Martha and Mary and Lazarus, those siblings, along with the rest of the folks in that region who'd seen Jesus's amazing power. In Lazarus's case, he'd raised Lazarus from the dead. And you read about that in John chapter 11, almost the pinnacle of Jesus's signs that were pointing to this great reality of who he was and what he had come to bring. And we see all three of them, Martha, Mary and Lazarus involved in this um, this feast that was held, this meal that was held in this home for Jesus's honor and they're each of them serving Jesus in their own way. I just want to say something about what we read in verse two here, that it says that here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. You know, 
by this time in the Lord Jesus's ministry, there were few people who honored him. It's no different today. Instead, the Lord Jesus is often disrespected and dishonored. And when we who know him as the son of God recognize that, we're astounded at God's grace and patience that he doesn't come in summary judgment on those who would disrespect the Lord Jesus. He's gracious, granting opportunity for people to see who he is, who he really is, and to repent of their sin and to run to him for the salvation that only he provides. We live in a society that disrespects the Lord. We must never um, do anything that would disrespect and dishonor him. Here we have this lovely picture of Jesus being honored in this home in Bethany. How is Jesus honored in your home and in my home? We see Martha and she honors Jesus through her practical serving at the meal. It's there in verse two, it says she was serving. She's not complaining about who might be serving and who's not serving. She'd done that before when there'd been a meal for the Lord. And the Lord had spoken with her about that. We read about that in Luke chapter 10. Now Mar Martha is entirely um, free in her service, doing the practical things in serving the Lord. And she's not bothered about what other people are doing or not doing. Martha is serving for Jesus's joy and for the joy of the others who are reclining around that table. Wonderful to see that, isn't it? Lazarus is there. He's reclining, we're told in verse two at the table with Jesus. Can you imagine the conversations that he would be having with the people that were also gathered around that triclinium, that, um, that table that they were um, reclining around? He was serving Jesus too by the very fact that he was there. Um, he's serving through his own living personal testimony to the power of God, something so evident to everybody who knew he was dead, but now he's alive. And Lazarus serves by sitting there and talking about it, we can imagine. And Jesus is honored as Lazarus speaks of the new life that Jesus gave to him. Lazarus is serving by being there and reclining and talking. And he's serving for Jesus's joy because what he speaks of in his own experience points away to Jesus, who's the honored guest. There's a joy for Jesus and for the others around that table. But our, our focus is really Mary tonight. Mary honors Jesus with a beautiful <clears throat> act of worship. She comes with 350 grams or half a litre of pure nard. It's an expensive perfume that's imported from the Himalayas. That's half a litre in that. It's imported from the Himalayas from Nepal. And it wouldn't have been in a bottle that you could seal and reseal like I've just shown you. It was in a container that was once the seal was broken, it was nearly impossible to reseal it again. So the perfume was to be used once and it was for a special occasion. Normally they would have been, such perfumes would have been used for anointing a body uh, prior to burial. 
or it would have been used maybe at a wedding. But once it was open, that was it. It was completely used. Now, this cost a lot of money. Uh, Judas later tells us that uh, it was worth a year's wages. A year's wages is a lot of money. And thinking about the times that this was happening in, that was a significant investment. Maybe it was a family heirloom. It was something that was being reserved, either for a very special occasion or was being preserved for when the family might experience financial hardship and it could be sold to help them through that. But Mary comes and she breaks the seal. And you read about that in Mark 14, where we get the parallel account. And she pours the perfume on Jesus. John tells us that she poured it on his feet. But from Mark and Matthew, we get the impression that it was poured on his head. So we get this, the idea that both happened, that she came with, with this much of perfume and poured some on the head of the Lord. And then as John's focus is here, she pours it on his feet. She holds nothing back. Everything is poured out for Jesus. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. We're told by Paul in 1 Corinthians that hair is the glory of a woman. That's a sign of, of her beauty and her femininity as well. So here you have Mary giving everything in an act of worship to the Lord Jesus. And her focus is on him. She honors him. She serves him by coming and giving what was most precious to her and to the family. And giving it in such a way that they would never have it back because they didn't need it anymore. She gives everything that she and her family have invested in. Because Jesus has become her satisfaction for this life and for the future. Her hopes are entirely in him. And her hope in him fills the room with this fragrance of the perfume. Mary is serving, like Martha and Lazarus, for Jesus's joy. And others in the room are the beneficiaries of that. I just want to say something about Mary being at the feet of Jesus. And as his feet were there behind him, as they were reclining at the meal, she has access to his head and then to his feet. And she can pour uh, the perfume there on his feet. We remember that in that same account in Luke uh, chapter 10, where Martha was told by the Lord not to worry about what other people were or were not doing. She's described Mary as the one who sat at Jesus's feet, listening to the things that he was saying. Do we see a link here? Here was this woman who had sat at the feet of Jesus and it generated in her this love for him and this hope in him, this satisfaction in him that resulted in this over-the-top demonstration of worship. Over-the-top, from some perspective, for some people in the room, maybe even, maybe for some of us, not for the Lord Jesus. You know, sitting and learning at the feet of Jesus as followers of Jesus, is, is the sure way of generating a worshipful heart that gives everything over to Jesus. We learn about Jesus and all of his teachings and his fulfillment of all of the promises of God when we're in God's word. It all points to him and points back to him and forward to him, and everything is there for us. The word of God fuels our worship. 
you know, the feet of Jesus is the place we either come to in that willing submission, acknowledging him as our Lord, willing to learn from him and to serve him. Or it's the place where we will experience the wrath of God as he judges us. And we're crushed by him. We're told that God has appointed Jesus in his resurrection glory to be the judge of the living and the dead. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where God pronounced against the serpent in the Garden of Eden, who had deceived Eve and Adam by extension as well. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Jesus is the one who fulfills that. He's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He's going to crush the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent. The feet of Jesus. He's going to do that. So in the fragrance of that room, as we can imagine it, there's a stench of sin. What we have in this room is either the fragrance of God serving worship or the stench of self-serving sin because Judas speaks up. Here's the seed of the serpent, one of them anyway, and he speaks up as the fragrance of that perfume fills that place. And all eyes are fixed on Jesus, who's the honored guest who has been honored by this act of worship. And he says that it's been wasted. The perfume should have been sold. It's worth a year's wages and the proceeds could then be given to the poor. We know it was a false statement of piety because John tells us what Judas was like. Judas was somebody who was um, wanting to line his own pockets with the proceeds of all those things that might have been sold in this act of false piety to be given to the poor. He was in charge of the money back. For Judas, being in the company of Jesus was for personal benefit. He wasn't with Jesus to honor Jesus as Martha and Lazarus and Mary were, and the other people who were there, who were at this dinner that was to honor Jesus. He was there and it seems he was just after his own things. He was with Jesus because it was beneficial for him in material ways. He was trusting money for his future. And maybe the possibility of a position of honor as one of the 12 close disciples in the Messiah's coming political kingdom, as he understood it. Maybe he thought he was going to end up with all sorts of good things in this life. You know, that sort of attitude in the presence of the Lord Jesus is a stench. It's a stench of sin. And we're all that. We all stink. The stink of sin is there in us because we trust in the temporary satisfactions that we think are going to make us happy. And they never do. And they're never going to last long enough to give us the happiness and the satisfaction that Jesus can only give. Sin is rejecting the ultimate source of happiness. It's God, our creator himself, and refusing to trust the promises that he makes to us in Jesus Christ. You know, Judas is going to 
go out from this experience and within very short time he's going to secure probably the best financial deal of his life and he was going to be using Jesus as the means of obtaining four months wages a third of what he could have had his hand in here but he goes and negotiates with the Jewish leaders to betray Jesus to them for 30 pieces of silver it's a stench of sin in that very room with the very one who is able to bring ultimate happiness and he chooses to use Jesus for his own means instead for personal gain there's John's great contrast isn't it in this little eight verse section you have this contrast between Mary and Judas Mary giving what was most precious because she found and was absolutely convinced that in Jesus she had her greatest joy and present and future satisfaction. Worship and service is the natural response to whatever promises us the greatest happiness. For Judas, he worshipped and he served money and himself. He didn't see in Jesus ultimate joy and satisfaction. That association with Jesus was merely serving his own desires. Temporary happiness. He was soon going to take his own life in despair. What a, what a story of sin's destructive power. But Mary is here having given everything and she's our example. We read at the end of this in verse 8 that Jesus says to, to leave Mary alone. That what she's done is a beautiful thing for him. But more than that, Jesus goes even further, I think extending another opportunity to Judas, the man who's choosing his own way rather than choosing Jesus. He says, you will not always have me. You know, this struck me hard this week that we can even as professing believers, be so close to Jesus and maybe have grown up in this environment, yet miss out on the reality of who he really is. And that's frightening. But Jesus is extending an opportunity if we're listening to this. There is a time limit to being able to trust in the reality of who Jesus is for the salvation from sin and of the eternal life that he has come to give us. And it's not tomorrow. The time we're given is today. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Now is the time of God's salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Maybe even for some of us, as we review this eight verse passage together, we see elements of Judas just bubbling out. And maybe the spirit of God is convicting us. You know, we're called today to respond to the invitation to repent of that stinking, self-serving sin that might be keeping us from that relationship with God through Jesus and enjoying the mercy of God that comes to us. But as believers who are absolutely convinced that we have life in the Lord Jesus, we're told to turn away from those things that we know are distasteful and smell bad.
and to live instead wholeheartedly for Jesus in such a way that honors him with the fragrance of our own lives. You know, the fragrance that filled that room, Jesus loved it because it was pointing to a, a greater and even more glorious aroma that was soon to occur. He said that she was preparing for his burial. What did Mary understand? Maybe here Jesus is helping her to understand that what she's done in her act of devotion is going to make a lot of sense uh, within five to six days. Maybe she had no concept, as the rest of the disciples did, that Jesus was going to lose his life. But Jesus was going to do that. He was going to go from here and go into Jerusalem and come out to Bethany again and go back in again. Uh, and the situation was going to escalate over the course of the week. And he would go from the honor of the home in Bethany to the ignominy of the crucifixion at Golgotha. And there is the worst stench imaginable. The stench of God rejecting sin after God rejecting sin after God rejecting sin as humans murdered Jesus Christ. But yet the scriptures tell us, God tells us in his word, that out of that foul stench of sin came the fragrant sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that delighted God and satisfied God the Father with regards to the sin of the redeemed people that were going to be his. Jesus' sacrifice satisfied his Father. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 5 and verse 2. He says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He loved God gave himself absolutely and fully to a life of devotion that honored God the Father. And at the same time, he's honored us remarkably by his love for us that he might give himself as that sacrifice on our behalf to satisfy a holy God with regards to our sin. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So out of that stench of the scene of the crucifixion that maybe it's going to be in our minds and maybe in the minds of our neighbours and our friends and our colleagues over the course of this week, more so than maybe at other times of the year. Out of that horrific scene and that stink is the infinitely great and eternal fragrance of the God-satisfying aroma of Christ's love for God and for us. And that's what we can speak of to other people. Because that model of glorious service and the reward of resurrection and everything that follows on from that is the impetus, is it not, for us then, like Mary, to give ourselves to the one who is our satisfaction, Jesus Christ. To give ourselves entirely to God in service for him. So that our lives might be fragrant of Christ to God and to others. It's what disciples of the Lord Jesus are called to, this sort of life that is lived for God and benefits others. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15, he said, We are to God the pleasing aroma 
of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. We're called to be like Mary. We're called to delight in what Christ has done. And like Martha and Lazarus and Mary, in our own way, to honor him, either in our serving, or maybe it's in our conversation and our sitting among people and telling them about what it is that he has done for us or in, in bold declarations of worship that honor the Lord Jesus. We're called to that because in so doing, the aroma of that still rises to God and the fragrance of Christ can touch others so they might come to know him as their eternal satisfaction and joy too. Wonderful portion, isn't it? John 12. 